You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 6th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. We're live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermak. Coming up on today's program, Mexico's president unveils a series of constitutional reforms. We'll ask what it says about the country's direction ahead of presidential elections in June. After that... Here in Antakya, a year after devastating twin earthquakes, anger at political leadership is growing as pleas to be remembered get louder. We'll look at why Turkey's reconstruction is taking so long. We'll also have the latest business news and Alexei Korolev in Vienna looks at the financial troubles of a historic boys' choir that's even appeared in a Disney film. Tony was born to sing. He has real talent and I want him to develop it. And how am I supposed to pay for all of this? Finally, we'll turn our eyes to Stockholm's Design Week taking over the Swedish capital. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Chermak. Mexico is one of a series of countries heading to the polls this year, and its left-leaning president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, is looking to get his legacy secured before leaving office. The Mexican president has unveiled a series of ambitious constitutional reforms that would safeguard pensions and minimum wage gains, but also take on the Supreme Court and cut the size of Congress in half. Well, Oscar Guardiola Rivera is professor in international law and international affairs at Birkbeck College. He joins me here in studio. Good, good afternoon, Oscar. Such a pleasure to see you again. <laughs> Oscar, let's let's look at AMLO uh, and and sort of his time in office so far. He was something of a populist leftist, we could say, when he came into office. What do these constitutional reforms say about the direction that Mexico has been heading under him? It's so interesting. I mean, I've always felt that Mexico doesn't get as much coverage as it deserves. Uh, On the one hand, AMLO is trying to recover the spirit of the 1917 uh, Mexican Revolutionary Constitution, which was widely influential. I mean, uh, the chapter on social, economic and cultural uh, rights in the uh, uh, United Nations conventions uh, is uh, 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 owed to that the influence of that constitution to a large extent. But he's also looking at the future. He's trying clearly to stave off uh, the kind of lawfare that uh, right-wing and far-right-wing parties have been using in uh, other places in uh, the Americas, such as Argentina or Brazil against Lula, or even uh, uh, Colombia's uh, Petro. And that is why uh, he has this sort of tripartite uh, uh, reform, uh, economic, uh, social, uh, but also uh, looking at the uh, uh, judicial uh, political apparatus. He's also trying clearly to set the agenda for the elections. Well, and and these judicial fights have been something that have been a hallmark throughout his time there as well. But at the same time, I wonder, when it comes to constitutional reforms like this, it's not something he can really get through right now, is it? His own party has a simple, a simple majority. So what, in your sense, is the point of doing this now? You're absolutely right, Chris. He doesn't have uh, the votes he needs to pass these uh, very ambitious reforms. He needs two-thirds of Congress. Uh, but uh, the incoming elections will uh, decide a huge number of congressional seats. It might be the case, if the polls are correct, that AMLO's Morena party 
will uh, get uh, uh, either a bigger or even enough votes in Congress to pass uh, these kinds of reforms. And even if uh, he doesn't, if uh, the reforms do not pass, he's clearly going to set the agenda for elections, both for the opposition and for his uh, successor. Uh, the electoral campaign uh, will be, to a large extent, whether or not they support the kinds of reforms that AMLO is proposing. Well, and you touched on it there, but how popular then is AMLO heading into this election and how much of that might kind of feed into his potential successor when it comes to this race? AMLO has been uh, uh, a very popular uh, president. I mean, it doesn't tend to happen, particularly not with... uh, with, uh, uh, you know, center-left uh, mm-hmm. candidates. As soon as they get to power, they are under huge attack by uh, media and, and the powers that be. But uh, AMLO has uh, uh, remained uh, at an average of uh, 55%, which is uh, pretty good for uh, uh, standards in the Americas. And again, some of these, uh, these uh, reforms have to do with pensions, you know, securing pensions for over uh, 65-year-old seniors, uh, you know, guaranteeing uh, Medicare for all and uh, education uh, for all. So you see the kind of contrast this may have with uh, the neighbors, the United States and or El Salvador. Uh, mm-hmm. At the same time, he is proposing that uh, uh, an amount of, uh, you know, a, a, par- a portion of uh, judges in the Supreme Court and in other uh, control uh, uh, offices uh, are elected, which is, uh, you know, would be quite common in places like the United States, uh, particularly state level, uh, but it's not in the rest of uh, the America. So that's going to be interesting, particularly because this is where you see how he's trying to stave off lawfare. Uh, By lawfare, uh, uh, what is meant is uh, the use by far-right and right-wing or conservative parties of uh, their, uh, you know, uh, quotas in order to uh, impose uh, judges and so on that keep throwing uh, uh, the spanner in the works of, uh, uh, you know, liberal and or uh, left-leaning candidates. Uh, We've seen it in Brazil. We've seen it in in, uh, Colombia. Uh, and uh, these can be used by, hard, by far-right uh, uh, governments. You see the case of Millet in Argentina pretty much concentrating all power in uh, the executive office. This is what uh, AMLO is trying to avoid. Well, while we have you, Oscar, speaking of Colombia, as you mentioned there as well, we did just want to ask you about that as well. There's been a, an extension of a ceasefire in Colombia between the ELA and and the government what is your sense of that ceasefire for another six months or so? What is your sense of kind of what's been happening there? How significant this is when it comes to really reaching a peace deal in Colombia that, you know, the current president has talked about, you know, achieving total peace in Colombia. Is there any real prospect of that? Pretty good news for a country that is in dire need of uh, uh, good news. Uh, if you read uh, the, the, the news in Colombia, everything seems to be gloom and doom and a scandal. Even the economist uh, made a bit of a hack job at uh, uh, the uh, uh, the president's uh, ability to stave off these scandals uh, without uh, acknowledging that you know, to a large extent they are uh, produced, they're, they're made by the opposition. This is good news insofar as even six months of a ceasefire uh, you know, lowers uh, the, the rate of uh, kidnappings and of, uh, uh, you know, other uh, security-related issues. So this is very good for Colombia security, which a country that has made huge progress. I mean, people will, of course, remember how it was 
a mere 10 or even four uh, years ago. Uh, huge violence, uh, uh, high rates of uh, uh, kidnappings and uh, uh, murders. That is being lowered. And uh, this uh, agreement uh, goes in that direction. So pretty good news. But uh, again, matters of uh, the question of kidnappings, the question of uh, financing these groups when they uh, you know, come, become part of uh, uh, political uh, normal life, and uh, also how to uh, you know, how to contain the paramilitary. I mean, left left wing guerrillas have demobilized, but the far right wing paramilitaries are still very much out there. That those are going to be difficult in the months to come. Will be interesting to continue watching the peace talks there for that. Thank you very much, Oscar. That was Oscar Guardiola Rivera. Now here's Monocle's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Chris. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Egypt to meet with President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. U.S. officials said the talks would focus on negotiating a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war in exchange for the release of hostages held in Gaza. World leaders, including U.S. President Joe Biden and Australia's Anthony Albanese, have expressed their support for the U.K.'s King Charles as he begins treatment for cancer. Buckingham Palace announced on Monday night that the monarch had been diagnosed with the disease and would postpone public duties. And protesters in Senegal have clashed with police after lawmakers passed a controversial bill to delay elections. The new legislation will also extend President Macky Sall's tenure. Opposition leaders have called it a constitutional coup and vowed to take legal action. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris. Thanks very much, Emma. Now, in Turkey today, memorials have been taking place after devastating twin earthquakes struck one year ago, killing 60,000 people in Turkey and northwestern Syria. Reconstruction has been slow, and some of the anger from that has been turning towards Turkey's government. Well, the journalist Victoria Craig has been reporting from Antakya in Hatay province, which was, which was the worst hit by this disaster. She joins me now. Victoria, you were at a memorial early this morning. What was the mood like? Yeah, I'm, I have to say, Chris, it was starkly different to what we saw last night. I mean, you talk about less than 12 hours between these two events. Last night, there was an orchestral performance, um, really aimed at honoring people who died here um, in the earthquakes a year ago. Lots of tears shed, lots of just really heartfelt messages exchanged between people. This morning was, like I say, a starkly different tone. It was an intense sort of almost protest-like environment. Um, Initially, I've seen many estimates. It was in the thousands of people there, but impossible to know exactly how many. There haven't been official counts of attendance, but it had been just organized um, by city um, and government officials who wanted to honor the people who died here and what happened here a year ago. Um, and people gathered in very calmly and orderly, um, looked as though it might be sort of a, a peaceful moment. Um, and instead, when the mayor and the governor took, um, if we can call it a stage, took the stage, there were lots of boos in the crowd, people calling for the government to resign. Um, and the the country's health minister um, made his way down to Hatay here in Antakya this morning, um, and he couldn't really even finish his speech. He did manage to finish it, but his voice was cracking as he was delivering it. People just really didn't want to hear what he had to say, didn't want to hear anything positive. They really feel as though they have been left behind here by um, government officials. So um, really, there's just uh, just a range of moods here um, on the streets of Antakya today. 
Well, Victoria, you really described there kind of the frustrations of the people that kind of spilled over in this memorial. I mean, just tell us more broadly what the state of Antakya is today. People have returned there, but they are just at the start of this reconstruction process. What kind of signs of reconstruction do you see and where does kind of, which gets at, I guess, kind of where this frustration also comes from? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there really aren't that many signs, I have to be honest. It has been a year today, as you said. Um, but really, this is a deconstruction zone. The The damage here was so um, intense, so massive. Half of the buildings in the city were destroyed. And it has taken a year just to try to get those buildings down and all the rubble cleared away in many parts where buildings once stood apartments, businesses, restaurants, all kinds of things. You know, those have been completely leveled. And now there's just kind of the sheets of this layer of crumbled concrete and broken tiles and broken glass and you find just bits and pieces of life that were just left behind children's shoes towels on hooks i mean things that are so out of the ordinary in their ordinariness here um in a disaster zone um so really because this is such a massive effort to get everything cleared away and really start over reconstruction hasn't really begun yet um there's a centuries-old bazaar in the very center of the city um it also was damaged by the earthquake businesses have reopened for months there um and have continued to operate but they say that the government has decided to take down the damaged parts of the bazaar which is essentially the whole thing and temporarily relocate those businesses into a temporary um, container city where they can continue to operate. They don't know how long they'll be there. They don't know when they'll go. They have no idea how long it will take to, to rebuild the bazaar where they're housed now, or even really what it will look like. And that's part of the frustration, too, is that there really doesn't seem to be a concrete or coherent plan yet for how to rebuild this city back. Um, and in a place, like I say, where people feel as though attention has gone elsewhere, that the world has really forgotten about what happened here a year ago. Um, there's a lot of frustration from people. Well, and Victoria, you meant you mentioned the fact that the health minister was unable to finish his speech. President Erdogan was also visiting the region this week. He kind of blames the slow going on a lack of coordination with local governments. But isn't that in itself something that he he could sort out this coordination with central and local governments? I mean, where where are the bottlenecks in your mind and what needs to be done about them? Yes, you're exactly right. And that is another thing that's really frustrating people here. Because if you'll recall President Erdogan in the days after the earthquake last year, he came down to this region and he promised to rebuild the region within one year. And as we've been talking about, this city in particular is nowhere near back to whatever normal looks like now. Um, and so, in fact, he was, as you said, President Erdogan here again, and he was in, in Hatay just a few days ago, um, sort of cutting the ribbon on a hospital project. Um, like, there are are small signs of progress. There are uh, projects, I guess, that the government has focused on, and it can point to those and say, you know, that we've done this for the region. You know, the hospital, as I say, here in Hatay, they have provided containers, the governor told me a couple weeks ago, to 200,000 people here. But that doesn't cover the need. There are many people who are living in temporary tents and containers still who have who say that they've applied to live in a container and they just haven't gotten permission from the government. There's just so much need here. And when President Erdogan was here just a few days ago, he said if the central government and local government government do not join hands nothing will come to that city and then he asked did it come to Hatay and he said at the moment Hatay has remained poor so that illustrates exactly your question that there needs to be more coordination um, some people blaming you know that some of these areas are controlled by opposition and some you know which 
is obviously opposed to um, President Erdogan and his AK party. Um, so there's tension there. Um, there's tension between the layers of bureaucracy, the layers of government in various regions. And so it's just very difficult to get things done. Sort of if you're in the same party, maybe it makes it a little bit easier to get projects going um, and funding where it needs to be. Um, but certainly in a place like this, it's become very difficult. Just quickly, Victoria, and finally, I mean, there are also international groups involved. I mean, you have even architecture groups like Foster and Partners having a grand plan. But I wonder just more generally if you have a sense of kind of what the role of aid and outside reconstruction groups might be in all this. You did mention before that there's this feeling that the international community has forgotten this region, too. Yes, and there are groups like the UNDP and the EU have allocated millions of dollars um, to helping to fund long-term reconstruction projects like waste disposal plants, hospitals, schools, etc. Those are all things that people here say are important and they do need to be prioritized. But at the moment, especially for people who are living in these informal tent camps where, you know, the seams on the tents that they've been living in, these are things that were not supposed to last for a year. Not, you know, people are not supposed to be living in these past a year. Um, they leak when it rains. And in the winter, it's very rainy. So this is a problem. And so they say the attention right now needs to be on immediate problems like access to clean drinking water for everybody, food for everybody, a safe space for everybody. And then they can start talking about the longer term reconstruction projects. But like I say, these big groups like the UNDP, the EU, they are focused here. They are trying to do what they can to help. There are also smaller scale loan programs from other countries like the US that are aimed at helping small businesses, women or other sort of targets targeted groups um, get back on their feet following the disaster. So there's a lot being done here. But um, because I think the the scale of the devastation was so massive, um, progress is slow. Victoria Craig there. Thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to Monocle Radio. Time to get the latest business headlines now from Bloomberg's Ewan Potts, who joins us from Dubai. Ewan, a results update from McDonald's we're starting with, and they flagged sales in the Middle East as having an impact. Hello, Chris. Yes, McDonald's has reported its slowest sales growth since early in the pandemic. Its chief executive warned early this year of what he called a meaningful business impact from the Middle East. Now, after the Israeli uh, Hamas war broke out, the chain became one of the most prominent targets for boycotts in Muslim countries over its perceived stance on the conflict. The boycott, boycott gained ground with social media claims that McDonald's was giving out free meals to Israeli soldiers. The problem for McDonald's is that many of its restaurants outside of America, particularly, are run by franchisees. And of course, McDonald's only has a limited scope for uh, stopping them doing this kind of thing. So in a way, the business is not fully controlled by McDonald's because franchisees have a certain amount of independence. And that is hitting sales, particularly in the Middle East. The region is surprisingly important for McDonald's. It accounts for 10% of sales, which is a lot for a relatively small part of the world. And it's not just McDonald's. Um, Americana Restaurants International, which is a Saudi-listed business, it's an operator for KFC, Pizza Hut and Krispy Kreme, it's seen its uh, restaurants targeted in the region as well. It's seen its shares drop by as much as 25% since the war started. So this is a boycott which is ongoing. Uh, and the chief executive asked about this. The McDonald's chief executive uh, said that he expects uh, this co- to continue uh, as long as the conflict continues uh, in Israel. You and just to follow up on that quickly, is there a sense, I mean, is this something you're seeing generally in the stock market? Are a lot of companies being affected in this way by boycotts in one direction or the other? 
it's really those businesses which can be uh, easily targeted. Of course, McDonald's is uh, the most iconic American business in the world, isn't it? It's uh, wherever you go, you see a McDonald's and uh, it really, it's uh, it's an icon of America, isn't it? So the but businesses which are obviously Western, and that does include uh, companies like Starbucks, which has also flagged uh, the impact from the boycotts. They've really been hit. But of course, there are other businesses which go behind the scenes, uh, American businesses operating in the Middle East, uh, which are not so obviously American, uh, which have been affected much less. So it is really the iconic brands which have been really feeling the brunt of the of these uh, these sales falls. And you and just one other story for today. China's stock market has been rebounding, but investors are still wary of re-entering the market there. What's been behind the sell-off? Yeah, it's been a very strong day for Chinese equities today. The benchmark CSI 300 closing up 3.5%. Beijing is again stepping up its efforts to stop the uh, to stem the stock market route with a string of policy announcements. Uh, Bloomberg has learned that uh, President Xi himself is being briefed by financial regulators. Uh, but the gains today are really just a tiny drop in the ocean compared to the sell-off uh, we've seen. By the end of last week, uh, a trillion dollars, that's uh, a million, million dollars, have been wiped off the value of Chinese companies in the space of just 13 trading days. So this year has started really how last year ended. In total, the routes for Chinese stocks adds up to $7 trillion. It's really a huge amount of money. Uh, we've got our big take on this today, which is our deeply our, our daily deep dive into an interesting subject. And that looks at the incredible rise of India's stock market, which has really coincided with the decline of China's. Uh, India is an increasingly open economy. It's the fastest growing big economy in the world. GDP expected to gain uh, 7% this year. Uh, in China, a number of factors have really been behind the, the sell-off. The eye-wateringly indebted property sector. There have been all these regulatory crackdowns. Investors don't like uncertainty. And the, and the government of Xi Jinping has been uh, very happy to... Uh, change the rules on things and to crack down on sectors in quite dramatic ways. And then, of course, there's the geopolitics, the the uh, the Western sanctions, the trade barriers to China, uh, particularly coming from America, but also including much of the West. Uh, those have really spooked investors. And that is, of course, before uh, we talk about who may or may not uh, win the election in November. That's uh, another risk uh, for investors. And something we'll be sure to look into further as the, in the next weeks and months. Ewan Potts, thank you very much. As always, you are listening to Monocle Radio. You are listening to The Briefing with me, Chris Chermak. To Austria now, where UNESCO-listed Vienna Boys Choir is in financial trouble and not for the first time. Last month, the Austrian government agreed to give it some 800,000 euros of taxpayer money, this despite the choir owning a sprawling lakeside estate in southern Austria worth between 5 and 7 million euros. So what is going to happen to an institution that the Austrian chancellor has called an integral part of Austrian national identity? Monaco's Alexei Korolev in Vienna reports. Tony was born to sing. He has real talent, and I want him to develop it. And how am I supposed to pay for all this? You don't pay. Where do they get the money to run the place? From their concerts. All over the world, people go to hear the Vienna Boys Choir. Tony could travel, see other countries. This exchange from a 1962 Disney film called Almost Angels gives insight into the choir's business model. It was devised by its pioneering interwar leader, Josef Schnitt, who also came up with the idea of dressing the choir boys in identical sailor suits. In the film, the boys returned to Vienna after a four-month tour of America. 
This may be a way of explaining why they're all suddenly speaking English to each other. I wish I could go to America. How'd you get in the choir? Oh, you give an audition. But it isn't an exaggeration. My name is Tina Breckwald, and I'm what you call the dramaturg at the Vienna Boys Choir. They toured like no one else. From 1926, when I think their first journey to uh, Switzerland took place, the choir has uh, performed on, I think, more than 1,000 tours in over 100 countries, some of which don't exist anymore, and sung something like 29,000 concerts live to people all over. This is only possible because we're like the Cirque du Soleil with several groups performing. Uh, you get the brand, but you get different individuals. That's another ingenious invention of Josef Schnitt, who expanded the choir to include several interchangeable groups of choristers. While one or more tours the world, the others remain back home in Vienna, always on hand to perform at official events. So what went wrong? With the choir already heavily supported by the Austrian government, why this latest handout? Tina Breckwold. The pandemic has, has kind of brought... We, before, we sort of made do somehow. We got through everything. But it's a very vulnerable system if you rely on concerts. If you have to give concerts to survive, and then along comes a pandemic, and we lost over 700 concerts in one fell swoop, more or less. And that's the income of three years. Then... This was compounded by the cost of living crisis that everybody is facing right now. And energy bills, we've just, just before Christmas, our energy bill here for the year is something like 100,000 euros. But now, this year, it's 250,000 euros. Wow. So that's more than doubled. And that right there tells you why we think that if we're giving a bailout, as it were, that's not going to do it. So we need something regular in terms of, of uh, government subsidy. Government money is one thing. Government language is another. So the Chancellor, Karl mm -hmm. Nehammer, when he agreed to yeah. give the money to mm -hmm. the Vienna Boys Choir, he said very clearly that, you know, we're doing this because it is part of Austrian identity. He said that in that way. Mm. I would rather have... I would rather have chosen the definition that the choir is part of Austrian cultural heritage because that's what it is. Sabine Reiter is the executive director of MICA, Music Austria, a non-governmental consultancy organization for musicians working in the country. If, if we come to identity, there's a lot more that should belong now to identity. We have a lot of new identities here in Austria now. Speaking of identity is fine by me or also by Mika, but then you have to open up to identities we have now in this country. Also, the support, the financial support by the government could open up. But Vienna Boys Choir dramaturge Tina Breckwold says identity is the right word to describe an institution that not only continues a centuries-old tradition, but is also used by the Austrian government as a soft power tool. Right now, as we speak, there's a concert going on in Seoul, Korea, with uh, quite a few members of the Korean government in attendance. And, I mean, we, we had a reception in the Austrian embassy in Seoul. We do have receptions in most Austrian embassies of, of the countries that we visit. And that is seen for the ambassadors. Obviously, that is seen as a very good tool with which to sort of... Um, 
show off what Austria is about. And we know, we realize that we're maybe something of a national treasure, so they're not going to let us go under. But it's not because we sort of are bad managers or we, we throw money out of the window or whatever. We don't, I think we're, we're very frugal, really, when it comes to it. We're quite economical with anything we do. Um, but you cannot save money when you have children to look after. You have to make sure that they get the best they, you can give them, provide them with the tools that will help them to carve a life for themselves and to, to um, hopefully make this a better planet. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Alexei, thank you very much. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And finally, on today's show, Stockholm Design Week is underway, a festival that takes place across the Swedish capital over the next week or so. And Monocle writer Grace Charlton is there for us. Grace, it all starts with a furniture fair. I know. Well, actually, no, yesterday the Stockholm Design Week was sort of starting to kick into gear in the city. But yeah, I'm currently at the furniture fair and there are some acceptable levels of buzz. I think the Scandinavians are not known for their exuberance, but everyone's very happy to be here. <laughs> so, <laughs> acceptable buzz. What is the acceptable buzz that you're finding there? <laughs> Who's there? What kind of brands? What have? Who have you been speaking to so far? I mean, all the big Swedish um, brands are here, like String and Ham. But there's also a guest of honor from Italy. Um, former Fantasma have set up this reading room, which is really cool. It's like pink velvet curtains and like rows of plywood benches and tables. It's it's really cool. So a little bit of international representation, but also the Swedes are here and representing their country. <laughs> The, the Swedes are there. What what do the Swedes themselves say about this? How is Design Week kind of seen in Stockholm itself? How popular is it? Who's who's attending? Who isn't? I mean, it's tricky. I think there's a lot of self-consciousness this year from what I've just like spoken to people in the street, but they they do feel like they're competing with Copenhagen and Three Days of Design, and that takes place in June, and this is February, and it's I think currently the temperature is minus three outside. So I think there is a little bit of like, okay, we need to kick into gear and start doing more events and making make this a bigger deal. But yeah. <laughs> well, then speaking of kicking it into gear, what what's your sense of kind of what are you going to be keeping your eye on as as this week unfolds? What's on your agenda? I mean, I'm always really interested in craft. Um, in Sweden, there's a lot of steel industry, so I've saw quite a few like interesting, like industrial-looking silver lamps from Vestberg, or also like garden furniture. I'm always interested as well in like raw Finnish pine creations. Vani is here for the first time this year, and I they've got this like amazing outdoor chair and footstool that they designed with Faye Toogood, who's an English designer. Um, and it's all about like being in the forest and honoring that. So I'm, I'm always interested. What I'm looking out for personally is like an amazing story and like consideration for material. Well, and just finally, Grace, one other one other trend that you have been looking at, I understand, is kind of trends in the workplace, tweaking the workplace. What does that look like there? 
I mean, it looks like, which I, I don't know if you agree, Chris, but I feel like at Midori House, we should get one of these, a phone booth to like do meetings and calls. They're so cool. Don't you think we should get one? I mean, if it's a well-designed one, when I was in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Club, they would have this old congressional photo booth, but everyone could hear everything you were saying if you were inside it. So if this okay. is one, you can actually have a quiet phone call. I'm all for it. Yeah. No, I think these are like felt and like sound insulated. They're really cool. I'm going to I'm going to put one forward. <laughs> Very nice. We look forward to that on being being on Monocle's buying list. We'll check with the higher-ups first on that. Thank you very much, Grace. That was Grace Charlton in Stockholm. And that is all the time we have for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Neoma Aque, and our studio manager was Christy O'Grady. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Chris Chermak. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>